Welcome to American Education FM, everybody. I'm Dr. Sean Brooks. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. Okay. A couple of things here right out of the gate before I get into some education and, of course, jab-related things. I made a lot of observations over the weekend, in particular regarding what's on television and what's on the radio. As you may know, I don't watch TV, and I certainly don't watch sports anymore, but I found myself watching a bit of both over this past weekend. And I got to tell you, you know, being awake and not being in the matrix is, uh, is really, really enlightening. And that is, again, the understatement of the century, I think. When you go back and you watch something that you used to watch, for example, college football, this was something that I used to watch with regularity. I kept up with it. I knew who coached what team. I, I knew all the details, the ins, and, you know, the ins and the outs, whatever you want to call it. But um, you listen to these analysts analyze these games, and it is exhausting. It's just exhausting. They say the same things all of the time. Nothing ever changes. They use the same words. They have the same checkbox of things that they just ring off regardless of who is playing. And it really just, you know, I, I don't want to sound insulting, but it, it, uh, it's just sad. I mean, it's just sad to listen to. And it's, it's even sadder to watch sometimes. But the, the intensity and the energy and, and all of it that goes into those games, if the American public ever turned all of that energy against their real enemies, we would never lose a war. We would never lose a battle. We would win everything. But that was just one observation that I made, again, regarding some of the football teams and uh, some of the games that were on TV over this past weekend. The other is an observation that I've made before, and I think it's telling for a variety of reasons, and I think a lot of it does have to do with the fact that people are waking up that there are less college students on college campuses and that less people are participating in the bread and circus. And that's the lack of attendance among some of these, or I should say within some of these football games, within the stadiums themselves. You look around and where, where there might be a rivalry game, there are empty seats and uh, they're doing what they can, it seems, to cover up these empty seats with promotions or logos or company banners or whatever it is. And again, those company banners never used to be there. They're just covering empty seats. So I don't know who they're fooling, but I mean, I remember, for example, watching Notre Dame and USC play and there wouldn't be an empty seat in the house. The place would be packed. In particular, if one or both teams were ranked and even if they weren't, it was still packed. There were still endless people there. So that was one observation again when it came to just the size or the number of people in the actual stands themselves. There were visible empty seats there. So I think that's something to continue to pay attention to going forward, although I know that the season is coming to an end and some of these sporting events are wrapping up, so to speak, here before Christmas break and certainly after the fact. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I just thought that was weird. And again, you, you know, you're listening to a guy who used to watch it all the time and then doesn't anymore. And then I jump back into it for one weekend and I just notice this visible change. I mean, I can just see it. It's, it's right there. And as you might expect, I mean, there's endless other changes too. And again, this is coming from a guy that doesn't watch TV and then all of a sudden I, I start seeing this, but the, the, the COVID propaganda that is on television within these commercials is astounding to me. It's really disgusting. You know, it's time for your booster shot and make sure you get it along with your flu shot and all this other stuff and these cartoons and the music that they have playing with it and everything in order to just suck as many people into this as humanly possible. And it's beyond evident to me that the children are, are really the massive target of all of this. Again, the colors, the shapes, the, the cartoons, they're making it sound as if plunging needles into your body on a six-month or three-month or one-year basis, year after year, month after month, is a normal thing. It's disgusting. 
it's just disgusting and it's overwhelming. Again, a, a child would not stand a chance against that level of propaganda, in particular if they're watching it without anybody around to either make fun of it or just turn it off. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's sad. It's beyond sad. And I don't see that getting better with time. Um, okay, those are just, again, some basic observations. And it's no different with the radio. I mean, the same commercials on the radio, too. Same thing. I was listening to a local guy's home improvement guy here in southwest Ohio. In fact, all throughout Ohio for the most part. And uh, same thing. I mean, it's not him. He's coughing a little bit more, which is interesting. Wonder if he's jabbed or not. But uh, just the the break commercials that exist. Make sure and get your booster shot. Make sure and get your COVID shot. Don't forget about your booster. Don't forget about your flu shot either. It's flu season. And then they're just ramming it down everybody's throats. I mean, you cannot escape it. I mean, 2020 and 2021 were bad. But um, it's evident it's not going away is my whole point. And I've got some jab-related things that I'm going to bring up a little bit later, but I want to dive into this first. And these are some education stories that are certainly going on here that I think just continue to show that the civil war that's going on within education isn't going away, and it's certainly getting worse because uh, the left isn't going to back down, and the right shouldn't back down either. But this is a, this first story is a perfect example of what happens when you have leftists in, in any position of power, in particular within local school districts, and they're just giving a middle finger to any law or bill that is being proposed that seeks to come down on local school districts regarding critical theory and the teaching of critical theories and preventing that from happening. You're going to have these leftist school districts stand up for themselves and say, well, we're going to teach it anyway, no matter what you say. And that's not a new thing, and that's gone on for a very long time, and it'll continue to exist. But uh, this is where, again, state legislators and state departments of education are going to have the upper hand when it comes to these leftist school districts that are doing this. And keep in mind, they do the same thing with right-leaning school districts also, where if they, don't, if they just don't follow state policy or education policy or even state law, then the Department of Education can file paperwork to enter that school district and take over the entire school board and have them removed. So you're seeing people draw lines in the sand is, is the whole point here. And those lines in the sand aren't going to go away and people are going to continue to draw them. In particular, you know, if these are hills that they want to die on, if these critical theory hills are ones that they care so much about that they don't care if they lose their job. So this first one comes from The Blaze, and this was from just a few days ago. It says, school district opposes and rejects any legislation against critical race theory in classrooms, argues that bills would prevent educators from accurately teaching students about history. See, everybody's confused on this one, which is beyond bizarre. It says, quote, on Tuesday, a Pennsylvania school district voted unanimously to defy any potential future legislation that would prohibit educators from teaching critical race theory to students. It says the Pittsburgh school district passed a resolution stating that it would defy any legislation the board deems harmful, including House Bill 1532 that, if passed, would prohibit teachers from discussing racist and sexist concepts. Uh, this, you know, this can be interpreted a thousand different ways because even a bill like this, while potentially well-intended, is going to isolate other individuals and keep other individuals from actually teaching the truth about a great many subjects when in fact it's the left that doesn't like a bill like this. My point here is that you're really relying on a history teacher's knowledge of accurate history, which, as we know, is not likely to occur. These are individuals, again, that stick to the textbooks by and large. They believe what's in the textbooks. They move that onto their students, and then their students grow up believing it. And then that cycle of lying and abuse and whatever you want to call it indoctrination, certainly that brainwashing, it's all of those things. 
that just continues. It just continues over time. So I don't know. This totalitarian approach or Bolshevik approach certainly isn't going to work either. It says about the legislation, HB 1532, the Teaching Racial and Universal Equality Act, would prevent educators from teaching students that one race or sex is inherently superior to another race or sex, or that an individual by virtue of race or sex is inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously. I agree with that. And that right there again should show everybody that this is a school district, in particular a school board, that just isn't going to make it. They're not going to survive. This is the hill they're going to die on, and they'll end up being removed eventually. Again, if it's not through an election, like I said earlier, the State Department of Education can come down on them immediately and just remove them because they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. It says, according to the legislation's description, the proposed bill is meant to put an end to the divisive nature of concepts more commonly known as critical race theory being taught to children in school. Again, this may be the only way forward when it comes to state law, that there just has to be more state law that wipes out this radical indoctrination of these multiple critical theories as they were. But what you don't want to be able to do is stifle real learning and teaching the truth. For example, white Christian slavery is something that has always existed, still exists to this day. Now, if you start teaching about that, is someone going to complain? Most certainly. It's inevitable that someone would complain. Because again, it's not about accuracy, and it's not about historic accuracy, it's about feelings. Because as you've heard me say, and as you probably already know, the teaching of feelings is so much easier than actually researching real history and then connecting dots, and then seeing how everything has been watered down and misinterpreted, and just the lies that have been told. My point is, is that good teachers are also going to get caught up in all of this, and good educators are going to lose their jobs for teaching the truth just because someone complains, and that's all it takes in this business. But give this local news affiliate a listen here as they break down this story just a little bit, and you'll hear some of the differing opinions on this. Vote the Pittsburgh Public School Board passed a resolution that opposes four state bills. The school board says these state bills, they're harmful to people of color and LGBTQ plus students and families. And this resolution also, I think, is really important because it, it also tells um, our legislators um, in Harrisburg, that you don't get to decide, you know, how we um, educate our students in the environments that we create for them. You don't get to determine what's going on in our schools and our cities and our classrooms and, um, you know, in parts of the state that you've never even been to. And so um, it really is uh, an opportunity for us to stand up as a school district. Public School Board says the bills are all against, they're against, would threaten the ability of PPS to continue to build a culture of belonging by stopping educators from accurately teaching history and banning classroom instruction on gender identity and sexual orientation, among other things. To me, it means that, you know, we as a district already stand firm on on the belief um, that our student that our students um, need need to learn um, their history and and identify it um, in the way that they feel most comfortable and um, that we are a district that supports that. The school board says they want to make sure all students and educators can be their authentic selves. They do plan to send this resolution to the sponsors of the bills and to the governor. First of all, history is not supposed to be comfortable. It's not supposed to be easy. It's not supposed to be, well, I feel good about that, so that's good enough for me. And as long as I'm being taught things that I'm comfortable with and I feel good about, well, then that's, that's reality. That is not reality. That is the furthest thing from the woman you heard talking, Devin Talaferro, apparently a school board member. Again, very sad. Uh, pronoun, or her, her, 
Her pronouns were listed on the screen as she, her, in case anybody cared. This is not a smart person. This is not an intelligent human being. They don't get to do that. They don't get to just say, whatever law is passed, we're just going to defy it because that's the way that it is, and we get to decide what they teach, and we get to decide this and that. You actually get to decide very little as a school board member. Because who cuts the checks for your entire district? The state does. The state's responsible for that. It's a government job. So I don't know what she's talking about. But this right here, again, is the larger problem, always has been, will always be, that the teaching of any critical theory, in summary, is, is as follows. I want to teach people just what I think I understand. And that's good enough. And if I can make it comfortable for people, then even better. It doesn't have to be accurate. None of it has to be the truth. I could even be completely miserable as I do it. But as long as I'm teaching them and they're happy and comfortable because I'm happy and comfortable, then mission accomplished. Nothing about that is related to reality. None of it. It's beyond ridiculous. But again, not a smart person. And this is just what happens when you have a bunch of people who don't know what they're doing, run for school board, sit on a school board, and think that they can defy the people who cut the checks. I don't think so. Nothing operates that way. So if I had to take a guess, I would say they're about to invite a whole lot of trouble into their school district. And now because they've done what they've done and they've decided to take it to the national news and be openly interviewed on the national news or local news, rather, uh, and it's certainly on the blaze, that, uh, you know, they're just <laughs> they just have more eyes on them now. And that's not going to be a good thing. Again, most school districts want to keep a low profile. They want to stay out of the limelight because once they're in it, they're either in it for political reasons or they're trying to cover up something. Well, in this case, they're not trying to cover up anything. They're just openly stating that they plan on breaking the law. So good luck with that. Wouldn't be surprised if someone intervenes there and removes them all from the state level. That actually happens more frequently, I think, than what a lot of people would uh, want to believe. But this is a perfect example, and they've opened the door for that to happen, so we'll see if that ends up being the case. Here's the next one. Again, this is, this is in the same vein. This is what happens when they openly defy federal or state law, and they don't seem to care. This comes from the Gateway Pundit. New York City Department of Education staffers tell foreign educators to keep quiet about outrageous cost of living or risk deportation. So they're openly stating, keep your mouth closed about complaining about either the amount of pay you're making or where you live and the cost of living. And by the way, if you actually complain to anyone up higher, well, we're going to find you and deport you. So they're openly admitting that they're hiring illegal aliens to do these jobs. Again, this is, this is not a survivable profession right now. It just isn't. And here's another audio from a local news affiliate discussing this very thing. So give this a listen. PS 111 in Hell's Kitchen has welcomed at least 70 migrant students enrolled at the start of the school year. And out of the nearly 400 students at this school, nearly a quarter of them are Spanish speaking. This 10-year-old loves her new school but wishes her teacher spoke Spanish. The worry for the superintendent in District 2 is making sure there are enough educators who can support these students. I don't have the exact number of teachers who are bilingual at PS 111. I do know that there are two very strong uh, teachers of students who are learning English. 25 educators from the Dominican Republic will now teach across the five boroughs, acting as more than just a teacher, but a cultural exchange ambassador, representing the immigration experience of those students who have just arrived at New York City public schools. All of us came and we are empowered of so many things, skills, math, science, physics. But the most we have is our dedication. The school's chancellor says bilingual teachers are desperately needed for a sound education. More than one in five of our students spoke Spanish as their home language. And 14% of all students are learning English as a second language. 
The plan starts with a group of 25 teachers and 50 by the end of the year, and 500 Dominican teachers in the next five years. And that may expand to other countries to reach the diverse school population. Even beyond the hundreds of teachers that we're looking to bring from the DR, we now have other countries who we may be able to do something like this with as well. And this December, the chancellor will be traveling to the Dominican Republic with some teachers who are not Spanish speaking, all to expose them to a culture that will be serving their students better. You cannot save this. This can't be saved. A variety of reasons right there. This is just not a business that can be saved. These people are destroying themselves with their own feelings, their own belief system, and a thousand other things while shortchanging actual students. The problem is, is they're also shortchanging illegals. Instead of having them deported or moving them on or whatever, because again of federal law, where you have to take in illegals within schools and then teach them, there is no way that they can hire enough individuals to teach these people English and also teach them their subject in their own native tongue. It's impossible. It's just impossible. They're destroying themselves. And then they're trying to play nice again by saying, well, we can partner with other foreign countries and we can do all kinds of things. They're, they're redefining what their actual job role is. And this is why the well is drying up. This is why the teacher education well is drying up. I don't know of students who want to be school teachers to only be told, you need to be certified in special education. You need to take multiple special education college courses and college credit. And oh, by the way, you're going to have to take at least one or two foreign languages on a constant basis. And in order to pass those, you need to be semi-fluent within that particular language so that you can get hired under the assumption that you're going to be teaching that language to students who only teach that language in America. You're talking about people that don't exist. You're talking about trying to find young school teachers that just don't exist. Not to mention, they're not going to want to do that. Again, you've heard me probably say this before, but many school teachers get into the business because they're in love with a particular subject and they want to teach students the subject that they love or the subject for which they think they have a firm grasp of and that they understand. They don't get into it because they want to teach them multiple languages, multiple subjects to students that can't speak or write English. See, they're trying to consistently put their hands in a cookie jar to pull out a particular kind of cookie that they think exists, when in fact, not only does the cookie not exist, there are no cookies in the cookie jar, and the jar doesn't even exist anymore. And every single time, again, you've heard all these politicians say the same thing, same thing with the Department of Education secretary, but they all say the same things. They all think it's just about money. Well, teachers want to get paid more. You know, if we just paid them more, then they would somehow learn a foreign language and be able to teach that to people who can't speak English. That's impossible. Money doesn't accomplish that. Money doesn't fix that issue. (laughs) It's a nightmare. It's a living nightmare. I cannot, for the life of me, imagine anybody wanting to be an American K-12 school teacher today or in the future. I just can't. And the only reason that they're holding on to the job at this point, many of them I would assume, is because they have no other option. They just feel as if they have no other option. Nowhere else to go, nothing else to do, and they're stuck. They're just 100% stuck. But this business of threatening these uh, these illegals for complaining about, again, telling foreign educators to keep quiet about the outrageous cost of living a risk deportation, it's beyond wild. And it says the following here, too. It says, bilingual educators brought from the Dominican Republic to work for the City Department of Education were ordered by a middle school teacher to shut up about the steep cost of the rooms they were forced to rent or be exiled from the program, they told the Post. The Dominican recruits 
said Rosie Mae Savory, a, a teacher at MS80 in the Bronx under Principal Emanuel Polanco, warned them not to tell a soul about having to fork over a monthly $1,350 to $1,450 each for a single room in apartments where they share a kitchen and bathroom with colleagues. Quote, she told us that we cannot talk about the rent to anybody. That was the main thing that she said. Don't talk about it to anybody. Don't tell anybody how much you're paying, a teacher quoted Savory as saying. Currently, 19 Dominican teachers are shacked up in the Bronx at three rooms, at, I'm sorry, three rooming houses run by the Association of Dominican American Supervisors and Administrators, a fraternal group of Department of Education principals and other employees. They apparently then sent a letter to these education officials, so to speak, for a meeting to discuss their concerns about the costs. It says, in response, Savory called the request a threat that could jeopardize their U.S. visas and their chances of bringing families to join them in New York, a teacher recalled. Quote, if you don't want to get in trouble with your family coming here, you have to write back in that email and say you wouldn't be part of of the meeting, Savory said, according to a teacher. Amid a widening scandal over the Dominican teacher program, the DOE removed Polenko, first vice president of ADASA, from MS80 this month. And then it says, last week, three members of ADASA's executive board, Polenko, Calcano, and Jay Fernandez, abruptly booted Socorio Diaz, the organization's president, unquote. Again, you're talking about serious corruption here. You're talking about everybody trying to cover their own backside as much as humanly possible while bringing in illegals and then telling them that they're going to be able to bring in their families and house their families all while stealing from them. Uh, none of it has anything to do with teaching and learning. Not a thing. It's a human, it, it's, it just sounds like human trafficking to me. It's a giant human trafficking organization bringing in endless illegals and then, of course, just doing whatever they can to babysit the right amount of people and keep everybody calm so that no one speaks up or speaks out about anything. It has nothing to do with teaching and learning. Not a thing. It's beyond pathetic. All right, here's the next thing. And then I'm going to move on to some jab-related things, and I think this actually slides right into the jabs. Uh, I could be speculating on this, but at this point, why not? Because this resignation is beyond strange. Jesse James from the Dangerous Info Podcast sent this my way. This is from mllive.com, and this has to do with the newly appointed, as of last spring, the Oxford school district superintendent where the shooting took place, the new superintendent has resigned. And it says that he's citing stress and health issues related to school shooting. Now, here's where this is odd for me, just based on what I've read about what's going on and some of the board meetings that I watched in, in the past and a number of other things. This guy showed up like he was going to save the day. And what made it strange was is that the outgoing superintendent, who was actually there as the shooting was taking place, he was, he was holding the position. This new guy who showed up has been in the district for at least 19 years. And then he shows up and he says, well, we're going to do this and we're going to do this. And, you know, I'm a go-getter and we do stuff and blah, blah, blah. And student safety is our big thing. And I've put together this huge safety plan. And Again, he was one of many people to put together all of those ridiculous parameters that students now had to follow and that the schools would have to implement. Again, the, the clear backpacks, you know, in case you want to see a gun in the back of someone's backpack, I guess, and these thermal cameras and a bunch of other weird things, bullet-sniffing dogs. Um, you know, th that was this guy. But now, all of a sudden, this guy can't take it anymore, and now he's he's leaving. 
rather abruptly, I might add, and he's blaming health as related to the school shooting. The, the, two, the two are odd. I, I think the guy's jabbed. I think he's jabbed. I think he's sick. I think he's tired. Um, I, there's, there's no reason why he personally would be sued for anything because, again, he wasn't a superintendent in charge of anything at the time of those four students being killed. So it's odd, but I'm going to read through this very briefly. And then I had uh, Jesse reach out to Sandy and, and ask Sandy a, a couple of questions about this and what she thinks. And she provides her two cents here, too, which I'll read here at the end of this article. But it says the following. Oxford Community School Superintendent Ken Weaver will step down from his post early next year after he was recently placed on medical leave, according to the Detroit News. Weaver's resignation will take effect on February 21st of 2023. Uh, let's see. Weaver was not in attendance at the school board meeting Tuesday night where his resignation was announced. Board members read a letter from Weaver announcing the decision and that Weaver will continue to cooperate with an ongoing investigation into the deadly shooting at Oxford High School on November 30th, 2021. Again, I don't know his role in it. I don't know. I don't know why he would need to be questioned. Again, was he a former human resources director? Was he in charge of where resource officers go? I mean, I have I have no idea. Um, it's just odd timing to be leaving now. You would think that someone would want to stick around to see this thing through. And here's the excuse, apparently. It says, quote, The stress of the shooting, which left four students dead and several others injured, contributed significantly to, to Weaver's decision to resign, according to the letter, citing the ongoing stress and responsibility related to the shooting. Weaver said his own health and wellness has suffered over the last year. Quote, with my deterioration, with the deterioration of my health, rather, I come to understand that my own recovery path must now lead me away from Oxford Community Schools. And that was just a portion of his letter. Again, he was named superintendent in March of this year. And it says again, he's been in the district for 19 years. This just seems very odd to me. Here's what Sandy said, too. She said, quote, I was looking into this the other day. His health issues reared up after the Crumbly trial in which all of their legal depositions were proved untruthful in open court and public eye. I'm convinced that Dana Nessel is working with a prosecutor to crucify the district because they turned away her numerous offers to be involved. And of course, Dana Nessel's the attorney general of the state of Michigan and George Soros bought and re remarkably dirty. Uh, there's just more to this, I think, than what meets the eye. The old health-related issue excuse, you know, I want to spend more time with my family and my health issues. I mean, look, this, if this is a go-getter superintendent, this guy's jabbed. He has to be jabbed. So I'm not saying that stress doesn't weigh on people. We know it does. But I, I just don't know this guy's level of involvement. And now that he's taking over as the new superintendent, the shooting already happened a year ago. What on earth did he have to do with it? Again, unless he was involved in the cover-up scheme behind the scenes. I would only be speculating, of course, but again, if he worked in the district office, I'm telling you, they do whatever they can to protect their own. And if he was behind the scenes trying to protect the now outgoing superintendent from over a year ago, who was again on the job as the shooting was taking place uh, and holding that particular position or trying to cover up for countless other people, I have no idea. But I remember when. He showed up to the board meeting, and in fact, I even played portions of that board meeting on the show a while back. Again, this would have been back in the spring when he took over, but he seemed like a go-getter. He just seemed like one of those guys that was like, you know, I, I, I love a problem, and I can't wait to just get in here and solve things, and I have a presentation for everybody that I want you to see, and you know, I'm, I'm going to do things, and we're going to shake things up. You know, nine months later, he's gone. So, go figure. But We'll see what the real reason behind that is, I think, going forward. Very odd, because allegedly the trial is about to take place in January, 
And as you've heard me bring up here regarding the parents, the crumbly parents, I can't for the life of me figure out why that would even take place at this point. Their lead witness is a criminal and not credible whatsoever. The school district was really culpable in the entire thing by not following their own policy. And uh, then you've just got the parents over here still in shackles behind bars. Blows me away. If they get off, or at the very least the, the charges are dismissed, I hope they sue the ever-living hell out of everybody involved. Beyond weird. Okay. Jab-related things here. Again, the commercials and everything over the weekend uh, just kicked it up a notch. And that just proves, again, that even for a guy that doesn't watch television, I'm sure it's a constant thing. But it was just overwhelming to just tune in and, and hear it almost every other commercial. It was really, really bad. Uh, this is also bouncing around the fact that uh, more are dead from being sick from the jabs than being sick with quote-unquote COVID. So, yeah, shots don't work. Funny. Funny how that's still a thing. This, uh, this first one I thought was interesting. This was from last week, although this was published in August. And this is an example of a jab-related story that I had been thinking about for quite some time. And, and one that I had questioned and thought, well, I wonder if this is a possible, a possible scenario. Again, we can think of the giant spectrum that is the shots and the shedding and everything that's taking place. But more specifically, when you, when you dive into that spectrum, what's the impact on sex? What's the impact on height? What's the impact on age? We've, we've sort of figured out the, the age-related thing. But this particular research article has to do with weight and body mass index and a correlation between, as it's titled, correlation between body mass index and COVID-19 transmission risk. And this particular response study or response article was published in the International Journal of Obesity, again, back in August, the end of August. Uh, and it's, it says the following, quote, we, we write in response to the article by Aghili and others, quote, obesity in COVID-19 era implications for mechanisms, comorbidities, and prognosis, a review of meta-analysis. So they're responding to another study that looked into this also. And it says, although plenty has been written about the increased risk of obesity for COVID-19 morbidity and mortality, this paper is one of the few that addresses obesity as a risk of COVID-19 contagion. It says, as part of an ongoing COVID-19 contact tracing study among hospital workers in our institution, we have individually traced all contacts of 218 COVID-19 cases to determine the most likely source of infection. It says we found that obesity, body mass index, was associated with spread of the infection to two or more coworkers, 3.47% or 7 of 202 of workers who did not e exhibit obesity infected two or more coworkers, while 25%, 4 of 16 of workers with obesity, infected two or more coworkers. A positive association was found between obesity and the spread of infection. Once the risk was adjusted to confounders such as age, gender, comorbidities, and symptoms, the risk was even higher. The duration for workers' symptoms in the moment of measuring was similar in all study groups. It says, in addition, a stepwise binomial logistic regression was calculated to determine the risk of BMI for infecting 0 to 1 coworker low spreaders against the risk of infecting more than 2 people high spreaders results are displayed in table 1 it says figure 1 shows the probability or odds of falling into the high spreading category per each unit of BMI in the study subjects and as you would expect the percentage increases on this chart is just a giant wave upward on this line graph. As body mass index increases, the probability of falling into 
a high spreading percentage increases. So individuals, for example, in this particular study or the one that they're talking about, if your body mass index was 46, then you had a approximately 32.5% chance of spreading it or being considered a high spreader, rather. It says the addition of the other variables such as age, gender, and BMI years, as was described by Edwards and others, did not improve the predictive power of the model. The study then says, or the summary says, that this may obey to small age differences in our group composed mainly of young to middle-aged hospital workers. It says that these findings indicate that the increased body mass index and obesity convey an increased risk of infection for their contacts, although confirmation of this will certainly require additional studies. Uh, It is known that patients with obesity and influenza shed the virus for a significantly longer period of time than people who are lean and that obesity creates a state of chronic inflammation which impairs the immune response and favors the emergence of new, more virulent influenza strains. We agree with the Aghili and others that relations between influenza and obesity can certainly be extrapolated to the current COVID-19 pandemic, which undoubtedly embodies a worrisome synergy with the concurrent obesity pandemic. Let me do my best to summarize this as quickly as I can. First of all, they're talking about hospital workers, and we know all of the policies and the procedures that hospital workers were forced to follow and coerced into following. They all have to be jabbed. They have to take the influenza shots every single year unless they fill out endless medical exemptions. Most of them have probably taken the COVID jabs. We know that. So they're shedding all of that on a constant basis, not to mention they are around their own co-workers who are probably equally as overweight or unhealthy and not lean. Assume I'm making that assumption. And then they, of course, are shedding all of their ill toxic cells and disrupted inflammation onto countless other people. Um, if an individual is bigger and not in good health, they're going to have more disrupted cells in the body. So you take into account, again, volume, mass, and the number of cells that are disrupted or abnormal within a human body, and then you put those people in close quarters around other people, yeah, you're going to have higher numbers of individuals who are ill and being shed on, basically. So I don't think it comes as a surprise. Basic physics would indicate that that's that's rather common. Again, as even the article said, an individual who is larger is going to be more inflamed, so to speak, and and experience, rather, uh, cellular inflammation on a more regular basis. So yeah, that's going to impact the people around them, no doubt about it. But it's little things like this too, I think, that are going to continue to come out. But the one thing, again, that they're alluding, but they didn't mention, was the shedding from the jabs. They must think that they're just walking around ill, not knowing that they're ill, and I don't know how that would be the case, but they're walking around ill with what they think is COVID-19, and then they're just shedding that and transmitting that onto other people, when in fact, it's actually the shots themselves that are doing that. I don't know if they're ever going to make that connection or not, but it's certainly going to be interesting going forward, and I don't think that's going to get better with time. Here's another thing that's not getting better with time, and uh, Even my public comments on this are are proving to be beyond true. And again, these dots were easily connected, at least for a number of us, a long, long time ago. But this is a very new article here from basedunderground.com. Unvaccinated blood banks? Question mark. Learn about the growing movement for clean transfusions. People do not want jabbed blood. And this is becoming a big, big deal. And there are endless news outlets. I mean, even Vice, as as hard left as they are, they're calling this a conspiracy theory. They're saying that, and I mean, it's not a theory, it's a conspiracy fact, 
there are endless examples of numerous individuals who are not jabbed, who, who do not want jabbed blood. And if they have to receive it, or they're in a position where they have to receive blood, their first question out of their mouths to their doctors or nurses or whoever it is that's administering this blood to them or about to, they're saying, well, does that come from a jabbed person? Because if it does, I want nothing to do with it. And then I'm sure that the look on the doctor and nurse's faces is uh, one of disbelief. It would have to be. But again, it's toxic blood. And even the doctors and nurses extracting this blood from jabbed individuals would have to know this. And again, I've seen those videos and played that audio on this show. They, they do know. They do know that this is a thing. Two final stories here, and this first one again is from an oncologist, and this again is something that they're noticing. And they can't run away from these facts, and I'm sure if one oncologist is figuring this out, then endless others are too. But this comes from the dailyskeptic.org. It says, as an oncologist, I am seeing people with stable cancer rapidly progress after being forced to have a booster. It says, there follows a letter from Dr. Angus DeGleshi, no, no chance I get that right, professor of oncology at St. George's University of London, to Dr. Cameron Abbasi, the editor-in-chief of the BMJ. It was written in support of a colleague's plea to Dr. Abbasi that the BMJ make valid, informed consent for COVID vaccination a priority topic. And I'm going to read his letter, and it says the following, quote, Dear Cameron Abbasi, COVID no longer needs a vaccine program given the average age of death of COVID in the UK is 82 from all other causes is 81 and falling. The link with clots, myocarditis, heart attacks, and strokes is now well accepted, as is the link with myelitis and neuropathy. We predicted these side effects in our June 2020 QRBD article. Sorensen and others 2020, as the BLAST analysis revealed 79% homologies to human epitopes, especially PF4 and myelin. However, there is now another reason to halt all vaccine programs. As a practicing oncologist, I am seeing people with stable disease rapidly progress after being forced to have a booster, usually so they can travel. Even within my own personal contacts, I am seeing B-cell-based disease after the boosters. They describe being distinctly unwell a few days to weeks after the booster, one developing leukemia, two work colleagues, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and an old friend who has felt like he has had long COVID, quote-unquote, since receiving his booster and who, after getting severe bone pain, had been diagnosed as having multiple metastasis, metastasis from a rare B-cell disorder. I am experienced enough to know that these are not the coincidental anecdotes that many suggest, especially as the same pattern as being seen in Germany, Australia, and the USA. The reports of innate immune suppression after mRNA for several weeks would fit, as all these patients to date have melanoma or B-cell-based cancers, which are very susceptible to immune control, and that is before the reports of suppressor gene suppression by mRNA in laboratory experiments. This must be aired and debated immediately, unquote. And here's one example as to why this should be regularly talked about, because again, you can't hide this. This comes from mllive.com also, and this was from last week. Michigan hockey, under, undermanned due to illness outbreak, swept by number two, Minnesota. From Ann Arbor, it says it isn't very often that a college hockey coach commends his team after back-to-back three-goal losses. But for number three, Michigan, its two-game series against number two, Minnesota, at Yost Ice Arena was anything but ordinary. For Thursday's 5-2 loss and Friday's 6-3 loss, 
the Wolverines weren't able to dress a full lineup because several players were out because of illness or injuries. You have to keep something in mind, too. This is where they're going to blur the line between illness and injury, and they might call an illness an injury. Illnesses are not necessarily an injury. They're completely different things. But again, this is where they're purposely going to blur those lines just to confuse people and keep people in the dark. It also says this, quote, At least one Wolverines player was hospitalized from the illness outbreak on the team. Senior defensiveman Steve Holtz was admitted to the University of Michigan Hospital on Wednesday, according to a Facebook post from his mother, Sylvia Jacob Holtz. According to a Michigan spokesperson, the university's health staff determines if a team has enough healthy players to compete. Moyle, who missed Thursday because he was sick, sat out all week of practice, but was cleared Friday morning to return play. It's absolutely horrible, it's terrible, and blah, blah, blah. It just continues. Again, this has never happened with them before. It's never happened. No one seems to be connecting the dots. It's just, you know, just a bad flu season. It's just illness going around. Who believes this? Who still believes this? In fact, if memory serves, I came across this story a while back that Anthony Fauci, as it turns out, is being deposed in a separate lawsuit. If memory, again, if memory serves somewhere in Oklahoma, could be Tulsa. And, uh, and he's basically given up the goose, so to speak, when it comes to the lockdowns and the efficacy of the, of the shots and a variety of other things, allegedly. Um, it's going to be interesting to watch those videotape depositions when they come out, but this isn't going to get better for the bad guys. This is only going to get worse, and uh, it's, going to just, it's just going to get more public. I, I don't see this being swept under the rug by any stretch of the imagination. So I'm going to wrap this up here. We have uh, Dr. Robin McCutcheon from Marshall University coming back for Wednesday's episode, and we're going to be talking about a variety of things. I'm sure we're going to get some Marshall University updates and the student perspective and her perspective on what's going on on the campus there. Sure, we'll talk economics as well and a variety of other topics too, so make sure and tune in to that episode as well. Thanks for listening, ladies and gentlemen, and I'll catch you on Wednesday. Thank you for listening to American Education FM. Make sure and check out AmericanEducationFM.com for more information. Take care and God bless.